The past couple weeks, Paul has been saying, if you're in Christ, you're a new person. Sin doesn't own you anymore. And because of this truth, he tells his readers, don't give your body to sin, but give your members to righteousness. You can live a life pleasing to God now. This is the thrust of chapter 6. It's all about sanctification. We say, this is great news, Paul. A way to be free from sin. But how does someone do it? In the church in Rome, some folks had a simple answer. How do we please God? How do we combat sin? We do this by running to the law. Some are trying to convince Christian believers that if you just know the law, you can do the law and conquer sin. Like a first century Maya Angelou, they were claiming if you know better, you do better. But today, Paul drops a bombshell. The law does not give us the power to please God. Because the law has been hijacked by sin. Chapter 7 is all about the law. The word law or commandment show up some 29 times in these 25 verses. Paul is teaching us about our relationship to the law now that Christ has come. We're going to see three movements in this passage that reveal the goodness of the law, but also its inability to win the war that wages on in the Christian life. All that to say, it's a bit of a downer sermon, but a message we need, for we all deal with sin. The unbeliever ignores it and needs the law to reveal sin. The believer is in a battle with sin, and it's tough. And it is so easy to think that if I just know right from wrong, if I just know what is good, then it's simply a matter of willpower. It's easy to think that about ourselves, and it's easy to wonder what's wrong with other people when they sin. Paul will show us it's not that simple. Paul is going to show us this battle we have with sin, and though the law is good, we need something more. So now, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married man, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. 
I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the, very, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the first thing Paul teaches us is that believers are free from the law. This is the point of verses 1 through 6. Verse 1 gives us the principle. The law is only binding on a person as long as they live. And he illustrates this point with an example from marriage law. Now, you've got to notice, he is not teaching about divorce and remarriage here, but drawing an illustration to say that death severs the binding of law. If anything, he's teaching against polygamy. In other words, you can't be bound to two people at once. So if Christ is now your master, the law cannot claim to be your master. Verse 4 then says, Believers have died to the law and so belong to Christ. Death in Christ severs the bonds of the Mosaic law. We belong to Christ. We find out this is a good thing in verse 5. Because in our flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law, they are at work in our body, bearing fruit for death. Paul tells us there's something wrong with you and me. The word flesh here has to do with our sinful passions. There's a part of you that wants to rebel against God. Now, hear me. Paul is not saying that physical is bad and spiritual is good. Matter is good. It's God's idea. He, 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 right? I mean, in verse 6, he wants our members to be delivered over to righteousness. It's not like flesh is bad or the, the physical is bad. Whatever these sinful passions are, it's not simply the physical body. But he uses that to, to, as an illustration to be able to draw it out. You see, believers still experience this struggle and conflict because we live between the times. Between Christ's victorious death and his glorious return. And there is a battle. 
But at the same time, we have been freed from sin's overwhelming and domineering power. Just as Pastor Josh said a couple weeks ago, sin's kicked out of the driver's seat, but he's still in the back seat trying to influence you. Christ has come. He has defeated sin and death through his sacrificial death on the cross. And so you and I are no longer, we no longer belong to sin or the law. But through faith, we belong to Christ. He is our new law and our new hope. Is this something you can say about yourself? Do you have this new authority, this new master? I hope so. I hope so. But if not, we want to talk more with you about it. About belonging to Christ and not to sin or the law. Under this new master... We have been freed and regenerated so that we can bear fruit for God. Isn't that remarkable? That you and I now have the opportunity, the ability to serve and bring glory to God in our very lives. We want to be a people marked by this kind of transformation. A new people, a new community that's been given a new life. But it is only by his power that we can move forward in this. Only by his power. Not by our own will or the old law. If we have victory over sin in this life, it is only by the power of Christ through his spirit. And this is how Paul concludes in verse 6. Look at it. Notice how he contrasts serving the new way of the spirit and the old way of the written code. The rest of chapter 7 he will show us how the old written code can't sanctify us. While chapter 8 depicts a new paradigm of life in the Spirit. Here's Here's the contrast. So then the first thing that Paul wants to teach us about life under the old written code is that sin hijacks the good law. Sin hijacks the good law. Verse 7 starts with a question. Is the law sin? I mean, after reading verse 5, the natural thing to wonder is if God's laws are even good. If it brings about sin, can it be good? Paul is emphatic. The law is not sin. The law is good. Now, there's a lot of debate about who the, the I is in this passage. The first thing to notice is that verses 7 through 12, this first chunk we're talking about now, they all have past tense verbs. Right? They're looking back on something. While the verbs in the rest of the chapter are present tense. They're talking about some kind of present struggle, some present reality. So something different is going on in these two parts. And you might come to different conclusions, but in this part, in 7 through 12, I think Paul is looking back on his own experience when the law came to him. When he, you know, he grew up under the law, but when it really came to him, when it really came home to him, when he understood it. But he's doing it in such a way that it mirrors the experience of the coming of the law with Adam and with Israel at Sinai. Paul does this because some are arguing that new life comes through the law. But Paul shows us the law has been hijacked from its arrival. Whether in me, the beginning, or the giving of the law at Sinai. We learn three things about the coming of the law in this section. The first is that the law reveals sin. Some might think the law is the problem, but that is certainly not the case. 
The law is not the problem. The law didn't create sin. The law actually reveals sin. Paul chooses to illustrate this point with the 10th commandment because in the command not to covet, you really get a definition of sin and a summation of the whole law. Coveting, I mean, it gets at your heart. What you want, what you desire, the sinful passions to never be content, to always want, to want anything more than God himself. The law shows how truly wicked and deceitful sin is. Do you know this? We need the law to do this. However, the law creates an opportunity for sin. This is the bulk of these verses here in this first section. In the very act of revealing, an opportunity is created for sin to produce more sin in us. He repeats this idea in verse 8 and verse 11. Because it is so important. How does this happen? Well, it's sort of like this. I'm going to give you a command. Are you ready? Don't think about an elephant. Don't picture his gray wrinkly skin, those giant floppy ears with the trunk. Don't ponder those enormous feet with the toenails that just don't make sense, like plastered onto the side. Now, did you think about an elephant? Now, if I hadn't given you the command, only like 10 of you would be thinking about elephants right now. (laughs) But giving the command evoked it in you. Uh, Parents, you know this principle is so true. Because you know the only way to ensure that your child does what you want is to tell them not to do it. I mean, as soon as you tell your child not to do something, there is just something inside them that rears up and is going to do it anyway. Thank you. It's so true. But it's not just kids, is it? We can know what is right and wrong. But sometimes, just knowing it stirs us up to want it even more. This is what Paul's talking about. I mean, can you imagine how terrible sin must be to take something good and hijack it like this? Paul wants you to know how sin works. How sin hijacks the law So you can see our need to be free from the binding of the law. Verse 10 gives us the moral of the story. Look what he writes. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Many consider the law to bring life. Eternal life, yes, but also just the good life, flourishing. The one who follows the law and flees sin flourishes. But if sin hijacks the law, then the very law that was supposed to lead to life, makes a way for sin and death. By its very nature, sin is such a deceptive enemy. It's a parasite, an ambusher, a monster lurking in the shadows. And the law doesn't defeat this monster. It just wakes him up. And yet, Paul concludes that the law is holy, righteous, and good. Paul has expertly separated out the law, which is good, from the sin that is hijacking it. Confessing that the law is holy, righteous, and good. And we need to hear this. The law, God's law is good. If you're an unbeliever here today, you need to hear this. You may be unaware of the sin that has so consumed your life, and you may need God's righteous law to pierce your heart. 
God's law is not something to push off or to ignore. There have been too many people, too many people who have been damaged and devastated by the works of sin. We need God's law to instruct us, to guide us, to show us the destructive power of sin. We need it to show us our desperate need for the gospel. For the believers here, know that the law doesn't put you in right standing with God. But the law, God's law is good. And we should give time to studying all of God's commands. We need it. We need it if we're going to make progress as disciples. But we must remember the law alone does not have the power to deliver us from sin. In fact, this is what the next section teaches us. Sin hijacks me despite the good law. Sin hijacks me despite the good law. We look at this and we say, Paul, you say the law is good, but you also said it proves to be death. So does this good thing, the law, bring death? Because if that's the case, God's just being cruel. This is the sort of question Paul assumes people are going to be asking. And again, he emphatically says, no way. No way. Verse 13, the law doesn't bring death, but death comes from sin. Sin, again, is the problem. And yet, the good law is impotent to stop sin from hijacking you and me for its own purposes. Now, if people questioned the I in the first section, people wonder even more about who the I is in this section. I've already said something different is going on compared to verses 7 and 12. Here, the the I, the person, the me, seems to be reflecting on a present struggle. Some people say that Paul, what he's doing here is he's dramatically representing an unregenerate person. Mainly, you know, there's evidence for this. I mean, look at the next verse in verse 14. Paul says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. How could someone think that this describes a Christian? Well, you can decide for yourself. But what I think Paul is doing is depicting the struggle of sin in a believer while also showing us the inability of the law to sanctify us. Because people, uh, people are saying, you just need the law. You just need the law to be, to be sanctified. I think Paul's largely pulling on his own experience, but he's doing this in such a way that we can all relate with. Any believer can relate with. It's a chapter that cuts right to the heart of our struggle with sin. So then in verse 14, I think Paul isn't talking about, you know, being a slave to sin. That's not really what he says. Instead, he's talking about those sinful passions that still linger in us this side of the resurrection. He's trying to identify this paradox that we have in the Christian life. This living between the times. But another reason I think he uses this I language is to dramatically show one of the first lessons in this passage. And that is that sin divides me. Sin divides me. So we find this confusing split in verse 15, don't we? I do what I do not want, but I do the very thing I hate. The conclusion he has in 17 is that it's not me doing it, but it's sin. That dwells in me. Sin is an intruder. 
a dividing force that splits me. Uh, the goal is to be a whole human being, right? I mean, the ancient philosophers, they believed that there were at least two parts to the human soul. The higher will and intellect and the baser passions. And often, these two were at odds. Paul seems to be using this idea to make his point. And notice, I'm not talking about emotion as though that's a bad thing. Emotion actually exists in both. All right? And he's going to talk about that with his desire to do the good. But the, high, but the baser passions and the higher will and intellect. We find a picture of this in Robert Louis Stevens' famous novella, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. A fascinating, a fascinating but terrifying story. The story tells us about Dr. Jekyll, an upstanding doctor who becomes frustrated with life. He puts it like this. With every day, I drew steadily near the truth that man is not true... Is is not truly one, but truly two. I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could be rightly said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. And from an early date, I had learned to dwell on the thought of the separation of these elements. If each, I told myself, could be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that is unbearable. Do you feel like that sometimes? That if these other passions that wage war against me, if they could just be separated out, life would be relieved of all of its burdens. This is what Dr. Jekyll thought. He could separate out this other nature and he would be free. And so he creates a potion to do it. However, the moment he does it, the moment he does it, he says, I knew myself in this new to be more wicked, sold as a slave to my original evil. This other person, Mr. Hyde, was more wicked than he could ever have imagined. It ends up taking over his life. He can't control it. And it ends in his death. Friends, you and I have something in us more wicked than we can ever imagine. Fighting to take hold. Christ has robbed it of its power, but it's still fighting from the back seat. Later, Paul is going to describe this as a war. A war between our mind that desires the good and the sin that is at work in our members. So that when we sin, look at verse 17, it's not I who do it, I want to do the good, but sin that dwells in me. This isn't an excuse for sin. Paul's already addressed that earlier. I mean, how how could you sin if you're in Christ? He's just showing us how we can feel like two different people sometimes. He's articulating what he talked about in chapter 6 when he said, give your members to righteousness, don't give your members to sin. This is the struggle of doing that. It's perplexing. It's frustrating. It's the work of sin to divide you as it tries to conquer you. Now, I said there's something more wicked in us than we could ever imagine. But if you are in Christ, there is also something more glorious in you than you could possibly comprehend. And this dual truth, it it should drive us to empathy. Empathy first with ourselves. I mean, notice, Paul is careful with his language. Paul, Paul never identifies himself with sin. He belongs to Christ. 
Friends, when you struggle with sin, know that you are in Christ. You are not your sin. It's not who you are anymore. But sometimes I think we need this more with regards to empathy towards others. This is how I see it in my own life. I'm more often uh, tempted to see other people as their sin, to identify others with their sin. Husbands and wives, gosh, cut cut, cut the other person some slack. Don't write your partner off when they sin. Brothers and sisters in the church, don't give up on one another. Don't give up on one another when, when someone does wrong. Give each other some grace because we are all in this battle with sin. And while sin may rear its ugly head, it's not who you are. It's not who you are. The next thing we learn is that knowing the good isn't enough to do the good. Verse 18, Paul reiterates, there is nothing good in his flesh. He's been doing this all throughout Romans. If you remember chapter 3, none are righteous, no, not one. There's nothing good in his flesh. But then look at the second part of verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I know what is right. He's talking about the law here. He's related the law to, it's the same uh, uh, word, the right and good, um, a related word. I know what is right. I know the law. I want to do it. I have the desire to do it. I'm just not able. Let me give you an example. Last week at my house, it's about 9.15 at night. Finally, all the kids are mostly in bed. Sarah Beth is on the couch with the baby. She looks over into the kitchen as I'm putting two Pop-Tarts into the toaster. She says, Jordan, because this has happened a couple times. So, Jordan, you said you don't want to eat junk after 8 p.m. I did say that. (laughs) However, uh, these are pumpkin (laughs) Pop-Tarts. See? Yeah. And I'm powerless to stop. In my mind, I know that this isn't what I want to do. But my stomach loves pumpkin. (laughs) Knowledge alone will not help. You can know what is right. You can desire what is right. But knowing the good doesn't give you the ability to do the good. Knowing the good doesn't give you the ability to do the good. I mean, just think about it. If we just look around, we can figure this out. Millions of people believe in God's good moral law, but they do not always obey it. So is there something wrong with God's law? No. It's sin hijacking the law. Knowing the law isn't enough. We need something more. We don't simply need more information. As a church, we are not a house of education, as though if we just learn enough, we'll be okay. Don't get me wrong, we need to learn. Hopefully, we're learning something today, (laughs) despite my uh, attempt. Uh, Disciples are fundamentally learners. We should be engaged in the task of learning God's Word, all of it, imprinting it on our hearts and our minds. However, this is not a house of education, but a house of worship. 
We need a power outside of us if we are going to have any hope of giving our bodies to God's righteousness instead of them being used by sin. More knowledge alone will not deliver us from sin. We need the Spirit. That's what chapter 8 is all about. It's the contrast. We could say more here about how the Spirit empowers us, changes us, gives us the, you know, an attunement to God, empowered against the sinful passions. It doesn't eliminate the struggle. It doesn't eliminate the struggle, but it gives us a fighting chance. We could also add that the ancient church it looked to the spiritual disciplines as a way for the Spirit to work and to shape our passions toward God so that we wouldn't be two people fighting inside but that we would be one whole being we would experience wholeness in our soul verses 19 and 20 then reiterate this struggle of sin i mean this is really this is one of the reasons i think paul is talking about a christian experience i mean i don't think an unbeliever is going to struggle with sin in the same way that a believer is going to and we could add, you can't, you can't press this as a proof, but it gives us a hint that if you're struggling with sin, if you're trying to do the good but struggling with sin, that might be an indication that you're on the right track. Okay? It doesn't prove it. It doesn't prove that you're a Christian. But it might give us a hint. It might give us some assurance. Paul reiterates the struggle here in 19. He doesn't let himself off the hook. It might be sin at work, but it is still the eye that is doing it. He takes responsibility for it. But then in verses 21 through 23, Paul says, the conflict continues. In verse 21, he considers a new law, a new principle, that that when you want to do right, evil is close at hand. I mean, this isn't so much a law as a warning for us. That when you seek to do right, you better watch out. Sin's going to be there. Be on guard. It's going to be there trying to trip you up. And so the conflict continues. In the inner person, Paul says he delights in the law of God. Uh, Yet another reason, I think he's talking about a Christian experience. A believer is someone who delights in the law of God. Yet delight in God's law doesn't mean deliverance through it. God's law alone will never deliver us. And so we find that this inner person who delights in God's law, he also calls it the mind, is at war with the law of sin that dwells in our members. The sin that stirs up my sinful passions and desires. Friends, this is the battle of the Christian life. And one thing it leads me to ask is, do you have this sort of realistic picture Because we can err on one of two sides, and we see it all around us. On the one hand, we can be very defeatist when it comes to sin. We can read this passage, and we can think, I'm going to sin. There's no way around it. Oh, well, good thing there's grace. But on the other side, we can be a little too triumphalist. Chapter 6 tells us we're free from sin. All right, that's great. Now we can live a sin-free life, never having to worry about the struggle with sin. This is more like the false teachers in Rome. When they say, all you need is the law, and you can be perfect. If you know the law, if you do the law, you can be perfect. 
Yeah, yeah, Christ saves you eternally. But if you want to be sanctified in this life, take hold of the law. It is your hope. Chapter 7 as well as 8 critique both views. We don't want to be defeatist. I'm doomed. There's no hope. But we also don't want to be triumphalistic, thinking the struggle is over. And really, any kind of teaching that promotes this kind of defeatism or triumphalism in this life, it's contrary to the teachings of Paul. And it really does a danger to the Christian life because it's not what we experience. We need a realistic view of our struggle with sin because we need to be told, don't give up. Don't give up. If you are struggling with sin, don't give up. If you do what you do not want to do, if you do the very thing you hate, don't give up. There is hope. It's not in the law. It's not, in, it's not found in only knowing what's right. Chapter 8 will talk about this new life in the Spirit, this new paradigm that has power where the law does not. But ultimately, the struggle with sin, and this happens in 8 as well, points us to the hope of resurrection morning. When our body of sin will be raised to new life and the war inside us will be over. This is how Paul concludes. Look at verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's hope is found in the resurrection. When our bodies, that sin, when sin that's waging war in our, with our passions is causing us to do things, when these bodies will be raised to new and eternal life. This doesn't end the fight, right? Paul's last phrase reiterates this duality. That while he is a servant of God with his mind, with his flesh, he serves sin. This is the battle we face while we wait for the resurrection. God in Christ has brought victory, though that victory waits for its final day. And so in this battle we turn to God, the one who will raise us on the last day and who gives us the spirit of Christ to help while we wait, to help us in this fight, in this struggle with sin. This is the fight. Look to Christ. While it may be difficult with ups and downs, our ultimate deliverance is never in doubt. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we need you. This life we live is fraught with sin. We struggle and we toil. We desire the good, but so often find that sin is hijacking us and causing us to do the very things we hate. And so, Lord, we say we need you. We long for the work of your Spirit. We long even more for the resurrection day when you will raise all things anew. God, be with us, strengthen us, enliven us by your Spirit. 
that we might walk and give our members to righteousness. In Christ I pray, amen.